Documentary filmmakers are a breed unto themselves. I met John McDonald when we were on a panel together at the AFI a few years back, and I've been following his career ever since. For the last 10 years, he has been filming the adventures and challenges of a man named John Sears. John calls himself Mule. Mule has been literally walking across the United States with three mules in tow. He doesn't even own a car and wants to keep it that way. John's film is titled Call Me Mule, and it's making the rounds of the festival circuit. It's winning awards as filmgoers around the world are beginning to see it. And I'm sure you will love it. Anyway, this is a fun one. Welcome back. It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania. Thank you. Welcome. You've been traveling all over the world, and I'm glad I finally caught up to you because I love this movie that you have. It's titled Call Me Mule. So for people who haven't heard about it, don't know anything about it, can you start at the beginning and first of all, tell us what is it about and who stars in it and why are you making it? Okay, well, it is a documentary. So saying stars in it, I don't know about that. It features a man who actually goes by the name of Mule. He prefers to be called Mule. And he actually leads three pack mules around the Western United States, living a nomadic life outdoors, sleeping outdoors every day. The mule's uh, carrying all of his possessions. And he uh, came through our neighborhood down in LA 10 years ago. And a friend called and said, you have to run down to the corner and see what's coming up the street. And I said, you know, I'm with the family. It's it's evening. It's getting dark. I'm not going to do that. He goes, John, you got to go see what's coming down the street. It's your next documentary. So I go down there and I see this guy coming and he just looks like a, well, I don't know, a kind word would be a hobo. He looks like a hobo, you know, riding the rails back in the old days, except he's with mules and did not have an image of like a, you know, cowboy or anything like that. His clothes were kind of ragged and he had, was wearing sandals and the tack on his mules, if you know what tack is, it's all the harnesses and everything, was kind of haphazard, put together with some twine here and some rope here and pieces of leather. And I learned that that's what he does, is he doesn't waste anything. Uh, he's just a man of simple needs and simple wants, leading a life of basically the opposite of being a, the owner of an automobile. So he, you saw him coming towards your house. What were your first thoughts? This is my next documentary, just like my friend told me. I mean, I had said I had to t I had to stop him, which he didn't want to stop. And he just kept going right past me, ignored me. And I went back to the house, got in my car, followed him. He'd already made it down. I mean, he walks fast with those mules. And I pulled over and about a couple blocks in front of him, got myself positioned and just kind of like blocked him. And I said, can I please just talk to you? And he goes, well, I'm on my way to, to camp tonight. And he just asked me for some directions. And I said, yeah, that's right. I said, can you just, can I just talk to you for a minute? So he kind of pulled around into a parking lot behind a dentist's office because his mules had immediately started eating the vegetation in the dentist's mm -hmm. office, all the beautiful plantings and everything. They were just <laughs> chewing them up, flowers, <laughs> everything. Salad. Yeah. It's it's a colorful salad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I went there, talked to him, and uh, I thought, I said, can I take a photo of you? And I did. I still have that first photo. And then he left. 
And I kind of got my phone out and followed him a little bit, uh, but it was getting dark and family was waiting for me. So I went back, I told my wife about the story of meeting this man. And she said, don't get any ideas for another documentary. That's <laughs> the last thing we need is you going off on one of those documentaries because, you know, independent documentary, guess where the money comes from? Absolutely. The, the family Absolutely. income. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was about 10 years ago now. Yeah. All right. So he obviously, does he even have a cell phone? How did you get in touch with him again? Oh, he has a well, cell phone. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, morning, I told my wife I was going to take the dog for a walk. So I happened to take my dog for a walk and I happened to grab my video camera uh, on the way out. And fortunately, Just... force, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I had the batteries were, were charged up. And I went down to the Arroyo south of the Rose Bowl. There's some stables down there. Mm-hmm. Because I knew he was going to go to that area. And I just walked up and down and I I did find him. Oh, and I had taken a cup of coffee with me just in case. So I offered him a cup of coffee. That helped break the ice a little bit. And just started talking to him. And he was pretty open about talking, except he kind of had a... He told me about, you know, why he was doing this and why he lived this this lifestyle. And I just kind of took my camera and I put it up there. He says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm filming you. Uh, you know, I didn't even ask. And he said, is that okay? He goes, no, I'd rather you not. I go, well, you're telling me this story about something that you believe in, this this way of life. I mean, if I film you and I can, you know, show people, it's it helps people understand what you're doing. I think you're on a really interesting mission in a way. And he said, okay, it's okay, you can do it. Uh, but the entire time I talked to him, kind of interviewed him, he was staring down very, very, not very present of the camera. And he wouldn't, I said, can you just look into the camera? He goes, no, I can't. Because he mm-hmm. had to just think of every word he was saying. And he was just like, mm-hmm. he just talked like this. Was, and I could kind of tell he wasn't necessarily comfortable around around me or maybe not around people. He did offer to uh, give me his cell phone number. He had a little flip phone. And he, because I asked him, how can I, how can I reach you again? And he said, well, I know that there's a thing that you could do texting, but I've never done texting. So I spent an hour kind of tutoring him on texting and we practiced back and forth. And after that, he was on his way. And I said, just text me when you get to the next location, wherever you're going to be, and maybe I could come there. So I didn't even hear from him. I did know that he was going to go to the Rose Parade and enter the Rose Parade. Oh. Uh, So I did read in the news in Pasadena that a man with three mules entered the Rose Parade next to the Queen's float and walked for a couple of blocks before the Sheriff's Department realized he wasn't part of the parade and they pulled him out. So there was a little story about him. I said, ah, why wasn't I there for that? And uh, so I I thought that was it. It was, and then um, about a week later, I get this text from him telling me basically where he is and says, if you want to come and and, uh, do some more filming with me, you can meet me at this location. So a couple of things come to mind listening to this. And I can imagine that when you first tried to flag him down, that a lot of people probably try to stop him and just like, what are you doing? Or get out of here. Or I can't imagine in a, in a, a more urban area where people actually live that three mules coming down the street are not always, not always welcome. So I feel for him on that. But what did he tell you his mission was way back then, 10 years ago? Do you remember what he said to you? On one of the first on, on one of the mules pack boxes on both sides, it said threemules.com. So if you went to that, there was a landing page. And it basically was a few par- paragraphs about not so much his mission, just the fact that he was living 
this life and that it was a wonderful life. And it was kind of poetic and kind of nice. So he, I asked him about that. He said, I, I did that so people would not stop me and ask me what my mm -hmm. mission is. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't remember the exact words of what what it was. I think it's I think I have it somewhere on the website, and it's certainly still on his website, which is threebeals.com. And so his mission really is to get the word out that more trails are needed for horses, bicycles, and pedestrians, mm -hmm. people who don't want to go from city to city in an automobile, and to have a whole connection of trails, because trails are disappearing. They are. A lot of land is disappearing too. In holdings within national forests, where mm -hmm. private land interrupts uh, a travel on on tra trails in the backcountry because you've suddenly hit a metal gate and mm -hmm. you realize that I can't go any further. I'm in a national park or a national forest, and I see have a gate here, and then I can look 300 yards ahead and I see the gate. That really was something he thought should change. Still thinks yeah. should change. It's not only it's not only private landowners. A lot of times, it's the park service or the forest service closing off all those trails because they don't want people in them. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, know that yeah. in the Mojave, I, I I love paper maps. Love paper maps. So if you go back ten years, say you've been doing this for ten years. If I went to a map of the Mojave Preserve ten years ago, it would have all these trails on it. You go to the new map, the trails aren't even on the map anymore. I can sympathize with what he's saying because. This is a beautiful country. If you get off road, you get away from the roads and you get off into those trails. It's absolutely amazing. Okay. So you meet him. He obviously trusted you. You know, it took a while probably to really get him to trust you, but he let you meet him at the, at the second location. Yeah. And, and, and so tell me how this friendship has developed over the years with the two of you. It's interesting you use the term friendship because, yeah, it is true that into the project, when we would meet someone and they'd talk to us, they'd say, do you have any friends, family? He goes, well, John is my only friend. Oh. I'm not sure if he would still say that, to tell you the truth, because, you know, at some point, friends can be wearing on your life, mm -hmm. especially when a guy following you with a camera. But I understand what you're saying. You know, because I do documentaries too, and I have yeah. somebody I've been following for ten years. And after a while, yeah, no matter how much you like each other, and you know, they can say you're family now. After a while, I think everybody gets tired of having that camera around. Yeah. Um. But that's and, that's as a documentary filmmaker and telling a story. At what point do you stop when you're telling a true story? Right. That's something that you as a filmmaker, have to decide. Yeah. There's no end to this. Absolutely. I mean, I wanted to keep going on and on and on filming. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, my wife was saying, I think you must have enough footage by now. I mean, three, 300 hours is probably enough footage. You probably have a story there. But I was enjoying the experience so much. Yeah. Yeah. I saw so much of California wandering with them, meeting people, going into little towns, going mm -hmm. backcountry with them. I mean, things I would never have done. And we really did enjoy each other's company. But he did tell me, he goes, even though we're friends, just so you know, I do not trust you. But don't feel bad because he, I don't trust anyone. I mean, he says, I trust my sister, which is his mm -hmm. only other family member, but I really don't trust you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he, he made that clear. And I did think every day that this could be my last day, he's just going to cut me off. Mm -hmm. And then as we got further and further into it, I said, wow, okay, now I think I really have a good story happening here. I mean, with the first police confrontation, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, he had told me that, you know, he had police confrontations or let's say police interventions or whatever, uh, visits by the police almost weekly. And some are are just checking in, making sure he's okay. And others are, you really can't be in this town. Yeah, they're not very kind. We, we have rules. We have rules about livestock being in our town. And we're not living in the 1800s any longer. So we have cars now. So you have to, you know, pretty much go to the next town, see see how it works for you there. So when you were traveling with him, were you camping out with him as well? Well, it's a little bit hard to fully do that because of having to download footage into hard drives and charging batteries. And then the other thing which I found out is uh, someone stealing all of your equipment because you're out there visible and they see somebody filming and they wait for an opportunity to yeah. steal your equipment. So that that yeah. even happened to me. But I've I had was, that happen too. It's really it's yeah. heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah and the, thing that I, heartbreaking, the worst thing about that was the footage that I had for that day. I could give up the footage. I still had my, my cards in there. And it's like, I wanted that footage. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I can't live without this footage. I've got to have it. Then yeah. in the end, I realized, okay, the film went on without that footage. But at, the, at that time, it felt, felt so important. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's something about when I meet other documentary filmmakers, there's, we have a lot of things that are that are in common, right? We love to tell people stories. We have this insatiable curiosity about where is this going to go, right? Yeah. And it takes a lot of tenacity to do what you've done for all these years. Talk to me for a minute about the equipment that you did have with you. I'm sure you've changed it over the years, but how, what were you shooting with when you started and where are you now? Well, I guess you'd say that I was shooting with a Handycam. There you go. Nothing could go wrong with a Handycam. <laughs> it happened to be a Panasonic, you know, with a flip out. Was mm-hmm. it the 170, I think? Yeah, so I was just shooting 1080, you know, mm-hmm. no, no 4K, 2K. Because mm-hmm. at the time, every, I know a lot of people were shooting with the higher end cameras and they were coming back with useless footage because it was out of focus. So so I shot with that. And then um, when that one got stolen, I replaced it with a Canon 305, mm-hmm. which was, uh, yeah, a, a better camera for sure. Footage mm-hmm. looks a lot better than that. And then I, I had a lavalier mic that I would put on him whenever he would let me. And then eventually he learned how to put it on himself. But there'd be some days where he says, I don't want to wear that today. And I'd have to respect that. And then I had Mm -hmm. a a pretty nice shotgun mic that I had on the camera. So I was able Mm -hmm. to get the sound that way. But yeah, no crew. Even having a boom person would have ruined the whole thing. So it was just, it it didn't matter that it was really high end 2K or 4K footage in my Mm -hmm. field. I just needed a camera that was bulletproof. You know, I think there's too much emphasis placed on the equipment sometimes. I think audiences want a good story. They don't know the difference when they're watching it between 4K, 6K, 12K. They just want a really good story. Now, we as shooters love the really high-end stuff, but I want to show the trailer. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version, you can at least listen to the audio. So let's pause here for a moment, and I'm going to actually run your trailer because I think it's just wonderful. And it tells a great story. You know, homelessness indicates uh, you don't have the money. If you had the money, you'd be inside, right? I wouldn't be inside even if I had the money. 
You'd be outside. We don't live in suburbia. We live shoulder to shoulder with it. We're surrounded by it, but we live outside. A man who walks through the West with three mules by his side was in Redwood City today. He's fighting a ticket. I just want to make very clear that you're not going to camp here. Every aspect of our life is under siege. We have to come into balance. But that all depends on us. That was awesome. That was awesome. And you know what? It is really well shot and it's a beautiful story. So I just, I really wish you the luck with this. Talk to me about how you've been editing it. What NLE are you using? And are you doing that yourself or do you have somebody helping you? No, I started with an editor up in Oakland named Stephanie Matura. Mm-hmm. And uh, we um, put together a sequence because I had talked to New York uh, Times op docs, and they were very mm-hmm. interested in the story. So we picked a sequence that we thought would be really good of a major arrest that happened with them where they impounded the mules on the 101 freeway in the Bay Area. And um, then that didn't happen. I mean, at some point, they just said, well, it's not a good fit. So that went away. And Stephanie uh, had to move on to other projects. And so it was just nothing was really happening for for a long time. I was just out trying to fundraise with 15 minute little trailer piece. And then COVID hit. And my daughter, Nina, who is a is an artist. I mean, she went to Cooper Union and was a painter and mm. um, but also did a lot of experimental filmmaking. And she said, you know, dad, it's COVID right now. It's like I, I'm not doing my regular job right now. So can I just give a stab at editing it for you? Because I have an opportunity to get into the Editor's Guild, but I need 100 days. And then I have this opportunity to get into, into a really good job as a, as a working in post-production. Mm-hmm. And so I said, sure, I can give you the 100 days. And so we went beyond 100 days. But mm-hmm. so she was able to get in the, into, the, into the Editor's Guild. Oh, and awesome. she took away all of my ideas I had for the documentary and just said, okay, I'm good. I'm going to do something. And I think it's going to be so much better than the direction you were taking. She goes, you know, all those interviews you did with people where you interviewed police and judges and bystanders and psychologists and other mule people and all that. She goes, we're not going to have any interviews, no interviews, because I, that's what I do. I do that to cut, we cover our bases. We think if everything falls apart, we always can go to the talking head. She goes, no, this whole thing is going to come from Mule's own voice. He's going to be telling his own story. And you have enough footage um, that we're going to go through. And then my wife transcribed everything. So my wife went through and actually pulled out all the really good things. And then so we narrowed it down so she had things to work with. He wore a GoPro camera a lot of the time when I wasn't around him. I gave him a couple of GoPros. We even had a mount that went on one of the mule's panniers. So we got oh, some, cool. which we didn't end up using in the f- f- film because it, it didn't fit in. And very little of, of his chest cam camera footage 
came in the film, but it served as a great lavalier mic. I mean, it was he was recording stuff that I don't think he even knew it was running half the time. So we got so much, so much from him that we were able to piece together so he could basically tell his own story. That worked out really well. So Nina did an amazing job, you know, and it was the usual three-hour cut where everything looks really good. We can't throw anything out and then go two hours and then down, down, down. Yeah. yeah. So how long is it now? It's now, there's two versions. There's the original director's cut, 94 mm-hmm. minutes long, mm-hmm. which is what um, premiered at Thessaloniki as the world premiere. And then um, at all, Spanish Film Festival was also the 94-minute version. And we found that the Europeans really like the longer, more drawn-out scenes. But I was hearing back from people in, in the United States that um, one festival director said to me, just because the mules are moving at three miles per hour, it doesn't mean that your film has to. You know, I, there really is. There is a totally different sensitivity to film on the part of what we call foreign territories, you know, outside of the United States yeah. and the U.S. We want everything to move fast. Everybody tells you you got to have that explosive beginning, get their attention. Right. Yeah, and yeah. then move really fast. But Europeans like. I go to the Berlinale Film Festival every year, and it's such a relief because you can breathe. You can sit there and you can really watch what's happening and you can breathe with the film. You don't get that with a lot of films that are made in the United States. So, yeah, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I sympathize with you. (laughs) Yeah. So we cut it down. We cut it down um, based on some people I really trust that just said, yeah, you have to face reality here. The sweet spot would be between 70 and 80 minutes. And then Mm -hmm. festivals can add a short in front of it and it gives longer Q&A time. Mm -hmm. So we we cut it down to 77 minutes Mm -hmm. and it still works. I think I'm not that dissatisfied with it. And we were actually able to add in another three minutes that had been left out. So we actually shortened it, but added in three more minutes of an amazing scene where he goes across the Golden Gate Bridge, which for some reason we cut out of the longer version, even though we had it all cut together. And yeah, it's a kind of a highlight in a way to the you know Golden Gate Bridge crossing. When did you get to the point where you say, okay, I've got the cut, I can start screening this again. When did you get finished and start submitting to festivals? Just at the beginning of 2023 or the okay. fall the, the fall of 2022, because Thessaloniki was mm-hmm. in March, beginning mm-hmm. of March of mm-hmm. 2023. And that was kind of a thrill to get in there because we applied to all of the European festivals, you know, that whole list of exclusive festivals that you just go, if the right programmer sees it as in the right mood at the right time, it could get picked up. Otherwise, because there's no name recognition or anything. And so... The programmer in Thessaloniki, when I went there, I actually interviewed her and she goes, it was a warm, sunny afternoon, but I was so tired. I'd already looked at 400 films. And then I read your little blurb and it says, man, traveling by mule through the West United States. She goes, that's what I need right now. I need a Western. I want to watch a good Western. (laughs) And she just said, I just was glued to it. And she went back to the other programmers and said, you got to see this. And it was just, just luck. It just you know, it just shows you that you just, you never know. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Tell me about these festivals. You're winning some awards. Official selection is the is the kind of the go-to award right now. And so that's, that's an honor in itself just to get into a festival because it's so competitive right now. There's just so many entries. And one that we just uh, were awarded was the Audience Choice Award in Almeria in Spain for the uh, Almeria Western Film Festival which I almost did not enter 
because it's like, okay, Western Film Festival. Okay. And then I had to look at Almeria. And then I realized that's where all the spaghetti Westerns were filmed. And so many other Hollywood films have been filmed there, Westerns and non-Westerns. It's an entire like film community. And plus Westerns, I mean, they're such an amazing genre of film. They it never Everybody's doing Westerns at some point in their career, it seems like. And so entered it and heard that we got into it and they paid everything for us to go there overnight in London, overnight in Malaga, car coming to Malaga, pick us up, drive us wow. to Almeria and up to Tabernas, which is where the actual film sets are for the movies, little town of 4,000 people. It turned out to be just a whole festival of Western films that lasts for a week and they have parades down the street on horseback. We rode in a carriage, waving to the crowd up on the hill where the Citadel was built. They brought an orchestra up there and they presented some awards to some really outstanding filmmakers uh, who have done Westerns through the years. And an or the orchestra would, was playing the themes from all the great memorable yeah. Western films at I sunset, on sunset on top of this hilltop. It was just glorious. What an amazing yeah. memory. You're making yeah. memories. Oh, my goodness. And I had no idea I was getting this award. Uh, there was It was the only documentary feature in the festival. And then they had six narrative features and then shorts and whatever. So there wasn't like a big field, but it was like our documentary, which was out of competition. And then the six documentaries vying for, you know, best feature. And they were all from different countries. And um, all the awards were given out. They had a kind of a mini Academy Awards. It was really nice. And then my wife starts elbowing me and she goes, John, John. And I go, what? You're on the screen. Look, you and Nina are listed on the screen. There's a, you have to go up on the stage. And I go, what? What? So I get up there I and I, they hand me this thing, the presenter, and then I, they guide me over to the microphone. And what is this for? And people are shouting, oh. Audience Choice Award. Oh. That's so special. Just, just took me totally by surprise. That is yeah. so special. Yeah. 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 So, okay. okay. You've been to several festivals. You're winning audience award. I, I love this. W what are your plans for more festivals? Are you going to keep submitting or where do you think it's oh, going to go? Yeah. You know, I've gone down the whole list. I've been doing, you know, lots of submissions. I haven't surpassed my production budget with my entry fees. That's good. <laughs> are you is using it, are you using film freeway to submit or how are you submitting mostly film freeway but it's mm -hmm. amazing how many of the european festivals use a whole nother system you know they don't so yeah how and, do you do that for people that want to learn a little bit more about how to send their films in what advice would you give to them you just have you go to those other festivals websites and they just mm -hmm. guide you through and but you have to answer a lot more questions and mm -hmm. and submit a lot more information because they take all that ahead of time, not just for the selected films. So you're uploading photos and trailers and director statements and sometimes the whole transcript. And, and of course, when you go to the foreign festivals, you have to have the SRT file so that they can work with the subtitles. Mm -hmm. And that's always fun to see the subtitles in Spanish and in Greek. And, and next will be in German, because in a month I'll be going to Vienna for a festival called This Human World. Nice. And it's a human rights festival. And see, that's what's come up is that it might be a good film for niche festivals like that have to do with the environment mm -hmm. and with human rights, mm -hmm. because he's an advocate for the environment. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much like he's an activist, although he is kind of an activist, but he certainly doesn't follow. I mean, he did take a letter and deliver it to the 
mailbox of the governor's office in California. But that wasn't being, he wasn't out there with signs and creating a press conference or anything like that. He simply wrote on a piece of paper, went into the Capitol, dropped it into the into the mailbox of the governor and uh, and left. Just hit the way he lives his life, having such a low mm-hmm. fossil fuel imprint. I mean, you know, it's just mm-hmm. he's, he lives such a simple life and he just feels like people are going for what they want and not what they really need in today's society and that people can just do with a lot less. He's very so, so philosophical. I mean, he just sounds like a philosopher sometimes. And then so anyway, these niche festivals, um, they, it was in the Green Festival in San Francisco last week mm-hmm. uh, at the same time that we were in Spain. And then it's going to this human rights festival. And it's supposed to, next year, it's supposed to be an fe- environmental festival down in Brazil and Rio. I'm entering a lot more of those festivals, but I think a lot of those don't necessarily see it as a true human rights or environmental film because it's not a call to action film. So many of those films are call to action. You know it's what I mean? It's a different this voice. Is, it's this a different is just, voice. Yeah. I sometimes wonder how effective that is anyway, when people are shouting and yelling and you have to do this and you have to do that. Uh, there's something very impactful about a softer approach. You know, the the idea that here's somebody living what he preaches because yeah. he really believes in it and and he's showing by example that we don't really need everything that we think we need, right? Yeah. yeah. And even even what he eats, he's basically a vegetarian. Hmm. I mean, so it comes down to everything. Everything that environmentalists and environmental film festivals promote, really, is what he practices. And the mules eat garden flowers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they eat almost anything. I mean, you'll see them they just along the side of freeways. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff growing. So they're actually the lawnmowers. How long has he had he been doing it before you met him? I mean, you've been covering him for 10 years. Yeah. When did he start with this? 30 years before I met him, he was oh doing it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. He's 76 now. He started at the age of 35. And he used to just hike a lot and he was hiking. I mean, he did the Pacific Crest Trail many times when he was mm-hmm. younger. And he was in Montana, he said, hiking on a trail and kept seeing the mule trains and just said, what if I get a mule to carry this load I have on my back? And mm-hmm. so that's, he got his first mule and just says, you know, really had no, he, he doesn't really train the mules. They'd never gone through any special training. It's funny how they each have a different personality in the film. And he said um, the two that are more ornery and are not good at public relations, it's because he never really trained them right. He, they serve him, but they're not necessarily good with other people. Yeah. And this white white one named Little Girl, she hated that camera with that big shotgun mic on it. And she'd come up to me and just start biting my chest, oh, just oh nipping no. at me. And oh, that hurts, no. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I am so proud of you for sticking with this because I think it's an incredible story. And I wish you all the luck. Do you have any aspirations maybe to to put this on a streamer like Netflix or Hulu or have a distributor pick it up? What are your wishes for the film from here when you get finished with the festival circuit? Well, it was a good thing that Tesla Nike happened early on and they have a pretty good market there with a mm. lot of a lot of sales reps and distri- distributors and I met with just about everybody I wanted to there you know the whole lineup and they all pretty much said the market is very difficult right now mm-hmm. so much has changed mm-hmm. and they can only take on projects that are 
you know, going to almost be like Oscar nominated documentaries right. that are like surefire. So they said, there's not really much you're going to get with your documentary. We certainly can't take it on. But Jan Rofenkamp, if you know him from Film mm-hmm. Transit, mm-hmm. he was there. He lives in Greece now. And he he looked at the film and just said, you know, it's it's a really good film, but it's just it's a little bit soft for, you know, the TV market. Like we were talking about where you grab the audience in the first, you know, it's not that kind of film. And he's the one who actually suggested and sent, gave me a list of the environmental and the human rights festivals. Smart. No, no charge, no consulting fee. Uh, nice. He just he just did that because he liked the project. He believes in it. Did you submit to the Berlinale at all, the Berlin Film Festival? No, I didn't, never got around to that. And then I was going to do it at the last minute. And then I looked at all the paperwork I had to do. And I didn't mm. understand it because they have the different categories and everything. So I think I missed my missed the boat on that one. John, thank you for taking the time to do this. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we say goodbye today? Because I could go on for hours. And I wish I had literally been traveling with you for part of this because it would have been it would have been fun to do the behind the scenes of you shooting this. Yeah. Um, but anything that we didn't cover that you want to say? Where do people go to learn more about this? By the way, tell us the website for one oh, thing. Okay, the site is uh, threemulesmovie.com. Threemulesmovie.com. Right. And, and also, where do they go to learn more about you and your production company? McDonaldProductions.com. MC, not MAC. And are they going to see pictures of your bagpipes? Oh yes, there'll be uh, <laughs> there'll be uh, you'll see two uh, two bagpiping documentaries there because I am a bagpiper. So uh, entitled "On the Day," which was filmed in Scotland, U.S. and Canada, of an amazing pipe band of the greatest soloists that came together to practice for only six days in Glasgow and compete against these bands that have been around for a hundred years you know, just top level bands. It's kind of a follow doc with a nail biting sports <laughs> ending, like, it, you know, are they going to make it or not? So that, <laughs> that was perfect. And having a documentary that, you know, is going to, you know, a six, six days. And then on the seventh day, they have the competition. I mean, that's a dream because you go, wow, there's not that many days of shooting. I have to get it all in that amount of time. I mean, I did go out and do some B-roll stuff and travel through Canada and saw people in their daily lives that eventually came into the band. But it's And then the other one is uh, Pipes and Sticks on Route 66. And it's taking three of the greatest Scottish bagpipers that are living today with the greatest Scottish drummer. And they toured Route 66 and played their music along the way and had a great experience because there's nothing like seeing America through the eyes of of Scots because they are so hilarious and they they're <laughs> they, are, they have a great sense of humor. Yeah. I spent if some it, time in Scotland. <laughs> yeah. If it had been like five Canadians traveling on Route 66, forget it. Sorry, no, Can- sorry Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been totally different. Yeah. No, you know what? To those of you who are listening to this, you are getting a good example of why documentary filmmakers and their product, their films are so popular right now, despite what's happening with with companies like Netflix, for example, wanting the Oscar winning actors attached to their it's like the old days in the studio, right? In the studios, they wanted name actors, they wanted name directors, name producers, or they wouldn't sign a deal. It's become very similar to that on companies like Netflix. But there is a huge audience for documentaries, and it's because the stories are so compelling. It's because 
We don't have the campfires where we're all sitting around at night. We have our documentaries that we can watch. And I, I just encourage you to find these stories. Whoever you are listening to this, find those stories, make those stories, because you are giving us a legacy that generations to come can enjoy. And I think Call Me Mule is one of those films. I encourage you to to follow the stories about John and his adventures with the mule. He's John McDonald. I'm Serena Catania. And thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. And remember what I tell you every show, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today.